You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 161 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. We're going to jump right back into the action at the Battle of Gaines Mill, which took place on Friday, June 27, 1862. As y'all recall, when we left off last time, George McClellan was hunkered down at his headquarters south of the Chickahominy, while north of the river, Fitzjohn Porter's reinforced Fifth Corps, facing west and north, was defending Boson Swamp. When we left off last time, Robert E. Lee was trying to get all of his units into the battle in order to break through the Union line before darkness put an end to the fighting. After Dick Yule's three brigades plunged into the fight, Stonewall Jackson sent for his other three divisions to have them move directly into the battle and engage the enemy. But Jackson chose to entrust this task to his quartermaster, Major John Harmon, rather than send a regular courier or staff officer. When Harmon encountered William H. Whiting, whose division was first on the road, Harmon made such a mess of the message that Whiting chose to stay put until someone came along with intelligible orders. Fortunately, the Reverend Dabney had watched Harmon ride off and was convinced the quartermaster would bungle things, so Dabney waited only a few minutes before riding off himself on his own initiative. Coming upon Whiting, who explained that he hadn't been able to make heads or tails of Harmon's message, Dabney quickly filled him in on Jackson's true orders, and Whiting set his division in motion at once. This shows that maybe the Reverend Dabney wasn't entirely useless as Jackson's chief of staff, after all. As Whiting marched in the direction of Gaines's Mill, he was uncertain where to put his men in, since it looked as if the entire mile-long sector needed help. Sometime after 5 p.m., though, Whiting met Lee on the Telegraph Road, and Lee told him where he wanted him to go in, to the right of A.P. Hill's troops, toward the left center of the Union line. As Whiting put his brigades in line, John B. Hood on the left and Evander Law on the right, he ended up bridging much of the gap that had opened up between the divisions of A.P. Hill to the north and James Longstreet to the south. We mentioned last time that when Longstreet was about to kick off his attack against the Union line, he saw part of Jackson's command to the north launching an assault. Those troops were the brigades of Law and Hood, and when Longstreet decided to attack at the same time, it led, finally, to the day's first reasonably concentrated assault by the Confederates. But it was nearly seven o'clock, and daylight was fading fast. (laughs) 
After showing Whiting where he wanted him to go in, Robert E. Lee rode behind the lines, surveying the situation. He certainly must have been all too aware that there wasn't much time left before darkness. During this ride, Lee met Jackson and greeted him with a mild rebuke. Lee said, Ah, General, I am very glad to see you. I had hoped to be with you before. Stonewall mumbled some reply, and Lee didn't continue with his reprimand for Stonewall's tardiness, since there was too much to do. Lee said, That fire is heavy. Do you think your men can stand it? Jackson replied with feeling, declaring, They can stand almost anything. They can stand that. After discussing some troop dispositions and the urgency of making a strong attack, the two separated. This meeting with Lee apparently lit a fire under the heretofore sluggish Jackson, since several of his staff officers commented on how Stonewall seemed much more animated and energetic than he had in quite some time. He sent orders to his commanders to press the attack. One aide was sent off with the stern message, Tell them this thing has hung in the balance too long. Sweep the field with a bayonet. But despite all this belated liveliness, Stonewall Jackson's role in this final attack was pretty much a non-factor. Lee had already sent in Ewell's and Whiting's troops himself, so Jackson didn't personally place any of his divisions, and his grand order to sweep the field with the bayonet was sent only after the attack had already started. Once again, it wasn't Stonewall Jackson's finest performance. Nevertheless, thanks largely to the dogged efforts of Robert E. Lee, things were moving toward the climactic Confederate assault all along the line. Longstreet and Whiting were on the right, while A.P. Hill's and Ewell's men were in the center. D.H. Hill was on the far left. Filling in between D.H. Hill and Ewell was Jackson's last division, led by Charles Winder. But during the day's movement, Winder got separated from Whiting, and in the confusion of marching and countermarching, two of Winder's brigades followed Whiting and ended up as a reserve force between Whiting and Longstreet. While Winder led his own Stonewall Brigade and Alexander Lawton's large brigade to near where Ewell had gone in, Ewell even helped position Lawton's men for the final attack as they arrived on the scene. And so as darkness approached, Lee had scrabbled together his army in a confused, makeshift manner, but finally had a strong, concentrated attack ready to go in. On the left, D.H. Hill had started his advance shortly after 5 p.m., but had made little headway so far. On the right, Longstreet had started his diversion around the same time before he ordered a full assault at 7 o'clock. Hill's and Longstreet's efforts had tied down a large number of Federals, making the center of the line susceptible to a strong thrust. A.P. Hill's six brigades and one of Ewell's were too badly beaten up to participate, but still Robert E. Lee now had about 32,000 men in a nearly continuous front more than two miles long, ready to bring pressure on the enemy line all at once. The resulting charge wouldn't be perfect, but once it lurched into motion, it finally displayed some semblance of the mass and coordination that Lee had been striving for. In this one attack, Robert E. Lee believed that nothing less than the fate of Richmond hung in the balance, but time was running out along with the fading daylight, and so it was going to be a very tense twilight for the Confederate commander.
Over across the way, on the other side of Boson Swamp, the situation late in the day was every bit as tense for Fitzjohn Porter. Although he had roughly an equal number of men, 32,000 or 34,000, to oppose Lee's final attack, many of them were utterly exhausted by this time. Many of them had spent the last five hours repelling the repeated Confederate attacks. Despite Porter's call for help at 5 p.m., no more reinforcements had arrived since Slocum's division had crossed the Chickahominy earlier in the day. Since then, Porter had inserted nearly every available man into the firing line to plug gaps or relieve exhausted troops. And so, with no reserves to speak of, that meant if there were an enemy breakthrough anywhere along the line, it could be disastrous, since it would be unlikely to be contained quickly, if at all. George McCall's Pennsylvania troops from Irvin McDowell's command had been with Porter's V Corps since the beginning of the fighting north of the Chickahominy, and Slocum's division from the VI Corps had come up during the day on Friday, but adding to Porter's difficulties now was the fact that during the battle he had inserted McCall's and Slocum's regiments individually throughout the line, wherever help was needed at the moment. Porter hadn't had the luxury of pulling whole brigades out of the line and replacing them because the enemy pressure had been too great throughout the day. And so with their regiments inserted into the line piecemeal, that meant those Union division and brigade commanders wouldn't be able to organize or exert control of their units during a crisis, and so in the event of a Confederate breakthrough, it would basically be every Union regimental commander fighting his own battle. Looking at the federal dispositions at 7 p.m., on his right, Porter could count on George Sykes' division of regulars, consisting of the brigades of Robert C. Buchanan, Charles S. Lovell, and Governor K. Warren. They would have some help from Joseph J. Bartlett's brigade from Slocum's division. Those federals would face the attack by D.H. Hill's five brigades, along with Winder's brigade, Lawton's brigade, and two brigades from Ewell's division, which had rallied for a second assault. To Sykes' left was George Morrill's division, comprising the brigades of Charles Griffin, John Martindale, and Daniel Butterfield. They had been reinforced with units from McCall's and Slocum's divisions. They fronted the Watt House Plateau in a crescent three-quarters of a mile long and would face the onslaught of seven Confederate brigades from Whiting's and Longstreet's divisions. While Butterfield's section of the Union line on the far left had been relatively quiet, Martindale and Griffin had already faced A.P. Hill's multiple tenacious assaults and had been under long-range artillery fire continuously ever since. Whiting's division of rebels would test their ability to endure and hold on. As 7 p.m. approached and the yelling and firing and noise of battle grew into a continuous roar, every Union officer and soldier manning the line behind Boston Swamp knew that this was the final stand of the day, and that the possible survival of the Army of the Potomac depended on it. There was no precise moment when the final Confederate attack began. There was no signal that sent 32,000 screaming rebels forward. What came to be the final charge of the Battle of Gaines Mill was really just the continuation of the Confederate attacks throughout the day. As Ewell's attack ground to a halt after 5 p.m. and Whiting and Winder were struggling through the woods to get into position, 
D.H. Hill launched a fairly limited and slow-developing attack on the Confederate far left. Hill's attack started off with the goal of eliminating a Union battery on his left flank that had been bombarding his men all day. Hill fought over that position for quite some time, with the rest of his division only advancing slowly and getting tangled up and hopelessly confused in the thick, boggy woods near the head of Boston's swamp. It proved impossible for his brigades to maintain their formation, and one brigade never got into the fight at all. Although D.H. Hill didn't advance very far over that difficult terrain in more than an hour of fighting, he did tie down much of Sykes' division of Federals. At the same time that D.H. Hill was beginning his advance, Longstreet, at the other end of the Confederate line, was beginning his diversion in which four of his brigades crossed Powhite Creek and approached the Union line behind Boson Swamp. After nearly an hour of exchanging shots with the enemy across the way, Longstreet received Lee's order that something more than a diversion was needed. And so Longstreet brought over a 5th Brigade in order to launch a full-on attack. At this time, he met Whiting and coordinated their assault, which began around 7 p.m. Between those two flanks, Winder and Lawton's brigades had entered the line on D.H. Hill's right, at the same spot Yule's men had attacked two hours earlier. Winder and Lawton probably started their attack around 6 p.m., after D.H. Hill began his assault, but before Whiting's brigades went forward. Two of Yule's battered brigades, under Elsie and Trimble, managed to rally and joined forces with Winder and Lawton's fresh troops, providing support for their attack. These combined rebel assaults pressed Sykes' division of Federals to the breaking point. D.H. Hill's division very slowly pushed back the regular United States Army troops commanded by Sykes. The hard-pressed regulars fell back to the McGahee House, where the fighting ebbed back and forth as the Confederates would drive off Sykes' men before being driven back themselves by determined counterattacks. In this fierce fighting, the 20th North Carolina of Samuel Garland's brigade suffered 272 casualties, 40% of its strength, in its first-ever combat action. The fighting was so intense that it seemed that anyone upright couldn't live. One New York soldier later said, quote, The air at this time was too full of lead for standing room. As the fighting raged around the McGahee House, Lawton's Brigade of Confederates entered the fight about 400 yards to the west of D.H. Hill. Alexander Lawton was an 1839 West Point graduate who had resigned from the Army to practice law and pursue politics in Georgia. With 3,600 men under his command, he led the largest brigade in Lee's army into its first combat on June 27th. They entered the woods behind Ewell's line when that general was still trying to rally his men after their failed attack. When Ewell saw Lawton's large brigade forming up, he couldn't contain his excitement and shouted, Hurrah for Georgia! And he helped maneuver Lawton's green troops into line. Lawton's green but enthusiastic troops charged and managed to push back the Federals by sheer weight of numbers. After a struggle of nearly an hour, they crossed the boggy stream and pushed their way up onto the plateau on the Union side. The Federals fell back and reformed. Meanwhile, Lawton paused to dress his lines, since he later said his men were, quote, disunited by the smoke, dust, and confusion of the battlefield. 
And it wasn't just the smoke, dust, and confusion of the battlefield, but also the dimming light that was causing problems for Lawton, since he couldn't tell friend from foe and was being shot at by both sides. Winder's brigade of rebels came into position between Lawton's enthusiastic troops and D.H. Hill's hard-slogging men. Hill's soldiers had been clawing forward yard by yard for nearly two hours. As Winder advanced to come up with Lawton across the stream, Elsie's and Trimble's brigades joined in the movement, sensing that the moment of victory might be at hand. It was probably around this time that Stonewall Jackson's order to sweep the field with the bayonet reached his commanders. As Lawton's men were pushing across the stream and pausing to regroup, Longstreet and Whiting launched their coordinated assault. Longstreet's troops crossed 400 yards of open field to get to the swamp. One soldier in Cadmus Wilcox's Alabama Brigade said that they came under, quote, such a perfect storm of lead right in our faces that the whole brigade literally staggered backward several paces as though pushed by a tornado. Braving that deadly storm, Longstreet's brigades advanced down to the swampy banks of the stream, continuing to push forward despite the severe toll the enemy fire was taking. Longstreet's five brigades would lose more than 2,000 men today, the vast majority being lost during this charge in the fading daylight. While Longstreet's rebels charged toward the portion of the federal line held by Daniel Butterfield's troops, Whiting's two-brigade division attacked over the same ground that A.P. Hill's men had advanced over earlier in the day. Shortly before this Confederate advance began, while artillery shells fell all around them, Robert E. Lee rode up to John B. Hood, commander of the Texas Brigade, and explained the situation and the enemy's position. Lee said emphatically, This must be done. And then he asked, Can you break this line? Hood replied simply, I will try. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. Did archaeologists discover Noah's Ark? Is the rapture coming as soon as the Euphrates River dries up? Does the Bible condemn abortion? Don't you wish you had a trustworthy academic resource to help make sense of all of this? Well, I'm Dan Beecher, and he's award-winning Bible scholar and TikTok sensation, Dr. Dan McClellan. And we want to invite you to the Data Over Dogma podcast. Where our mission is to increase public access to the academic study of the Bible and religion, and also to combat the spread of misinformation about the same. But, you know, in a fun way. Every week we tackle fascinating topics, we go back to source materials in their original languages, and we interview top scholars in the field. So whether you're a devout believer, or you're just interested in a clear-eyed, deeply informed look at one of the most influential books of all time, we think you're going to love the Data Over Dogma podcast, wherever you subscribe to awesome shows. William H. Whiting ordered Law and Hood to advance their brigades rapidly toward the Union position without pausing to fire. 
Whiting knew that his men had to close the distance quickly if they were to have a chance to break the enemy line. Evander Law later wrote that, quote, Had these orders not been strictly obeyed, the assault would have been a failure. No troops could have stood long under the withering storm of lead and iron that beat into their faces. End quote. During their double-quick rush to close with the Federals, Law and Hood still suffered nearly a thousand casualties. As the attack began, Hood saw a gap forming between Law's brigade and Longstreet's line, so he personally led two regiments, his old 4th Texas and the 18th Georgia, behind Law's brigade to come up on his right flank and bridge this gap. Hood, on foot, led his men at the quick step toward the death-dealing Yankee line, shouting, Steady! Steady! I don't want you to run! Not a Confederate soldier returned the enemy fire, but kept moving forward at a steady trot. Law later recalled how, quote, Men fell like leaves in an autumn wind. The Federal artillery tore gaps in the ranks at every stage. Once they got within a hundred yards of the stream, Hood shouted for the charge. The men raised the rebel yell and crashed into the Federal's first line at about the same time that Longstreet's troops splashed through the water, also yelling at the top of their lungs. One of Longstreet's men later remembered how those seven brigades of screaming Confederate soldiers, quote, sounded like 40,000 wildcats. After hours of nearly constant fighting, Lee's army finally broke through the Union position behind Boson Swamp. Unable to stem the onrushing tide of rebels, the Union soldiers of Martindale's brigade broke first and raced up the hill to their rear when the enemy got within ten paces of their line. As they retreated, they carried the second line of defenders with them. Hood's men now let loose with the volley they had been holding, and the crash of musketry caused enormous damage to the retreating Yankees. Longstreet's men, particularly those led by Cadmus Wilcox, broke through Butterfield's lines at almost exactly the same moment. In fact, after the war, Hood would admit to Wilcox that his men had probably reached the Union artillery on the crest before Hood's men, suggesting that Wilcox's breakthrough may have occurred moments before Hood's. In reality, it's impossible to know which Confederate unit broke through the Union line first, although that didn't deter the rivals from claiming credit afterward. D.H. Hill was finally able to force the battered Union troops of Sykes' division to retreat from their position around the McGahee House. He later admitted, quote, I have always believed this the first break in the Federal line, end quote. But many thought one of Longstreet's brigades had punctured the Union defenses first, while the men of Lawton's brigade had reason to believe that their initial push across the stream had started the unraveling of the enemy line. The simple truth, though, is that the Union defensive line broke nearly simultaneously across the entire two-mile front. Fitzjohn Porter was unable to seal the crack in any one place because there were too many local crises erupting at once and he had no reserves left. Once the Union retreat began, it didn't manifest itself the same way all over the field. Some units fell back grudgingly and in good order, while others panicked and fled in haste across the plateau's fields toward the Chickahominy. Sykes' regulars conducted a fighting retreat that kept their pursuers in check until it was too dark to pursue further. However, other units fled so quickly that their neighbors were cut off. 
two regiments of George Taylor's brigade of Slocum's division were surrounded and nearly a thousand men captured, and large pockets of Federals all along the line, particularly on the Union left, at the site of Hood's breakthrough, suffered a similar fate. Once they set the enemy infantry to retreating, the Confederate soldiers went after the Union artillery that had been tormenting them all afternoon. Sitting at the top of the rise, at the forward edge of the plateau, the Federal guns switched to canister as the Rebel troops came within point-blank range. In some places, the artillery couldn't fire because the Confederate and Union troops were mixed together in advance and retreat. In other sectors, the guns were able to continue firing, but couldn't hold back the onrushing rebels without the support from their own infantry, and few Yankee soldiers were willing to remain on the field to cover the withdrawal of the artillery. Adding to the difficulties, Confederates picked off many of the battery horses to impede the guns' retreat. Across the length of the front, ten Union artillery pieces were abandoned, Porter also had several batteries of reserve artillery south and east of the Watt House, and now these became the next targets of the advancing rebels in the chaos of retreat and the rapidly failing light. As the still-advancing Confederate line approached the last stand of Porter's artillery, Philip St. George Cook, the Federal Cavalry commander, decided to take matters into his own hands. Cook, by the way, was Jeb Stewart's father-in-law. But when he saw the rebels nearing the reserve artillery a few minutes after 8 p.m., he sent about 250 of his cavalrymen galloping forward in an unauthorized charge on the approaching southern troops. The ill-advised attack was reminiscent of the British cavalry's hopeless charge of the Light Brigade in the Crimean War. The Federal horsemen rode into their own valley of death, charging past their own artillery toward the Confederate infantry a couple of hundred yards beyond. They charged Longstreet's troops, who quickly formed into line, fired a volley, and unhorsed dozens of troopers. The remaining horsemen wheeled about and retreated back through their artillery line, creating so much confusion that in the chaos, nine more cannon had to be abandoned. One of Wilcox's Confederates said of the Union cavalry charge, quote, we taught them a lesson that when infantry are fighting, they should keep out of the way. Trying to save face after the fact, Porter later wrote that this foolish cavalry charge was the main reason for his retreat, which is ridiculous. Other than costing the lives of about 50 troopers and as many horses, the charge didn't alter the situation since Porter's command was already defeated and retreating in a flood back toward the river. The outcome could have been much worse for Porter if the final Confederate charge hadn't come so late in the day. His greatest accomplishment was holding on by his fingernails just long enough for darkness to prevent a complete rout. By doing so, Porter left too little time for Robert E. Lee to exploit his breakthrough. Of course, if Lee could have managed to concentrate his infantry and launch a coordinated assault even one or two hours earlier, he could have gained a much more significant victory. After all, Porter wasn't getting any substantial reinforcements. Only two brigades from Edwin Sumner's 6th Corps were sent by McClellan late in the day, and they didn't arrive on the scene until nearly 8 p.m., when all they could do was try to force their way through the retreating Union troops and serve as Porter's rear guard. As the retreating Union troops crowded the roads leading to the Alexander and Grapevine bridges over the Chickahominy, Robert E. Lee could only rue the fact that he had been left with too little time to exploit his breakthrough. 
Even two more hours of daylight very probably would have meant the destruction of a substantial part of McClellan's army. But it was not to be, of course, and so Lee had to settle for a more limited and costly victory. Ultimately, the Confederate victory honors went to Hood's brigade, particularly to his 4th Texas Infantry Regiment, for breaking through Porter's line. John B. Hood became a celebrated Southern hero as a result, and earned a reputation as one of Lee's toughest fighters. But there was plenty of glory to spread around, just as there were plenty of casualties for all involved in the fighting. Whiting would lose more than a thousand men in the final charge. A.P. Hill lost more than 2,000 soldiers in his fruitless afternoon attacks. Longstreet would lose 2,000 men for his part, and D.H. Hill, Ewell, Winder, and Lawton would account for nearly 4,000 casualties between them. Though Lee had finally broken the enemy line and claimed his first victory, the cost in southern blood was inordinately expensive. To his credit, although Lee had initially initially misread his opponent's intentions, he had adapted quickly once he realized where the enemy was. Though better than the day before, communications with his subordinates was still spotty. D.H. Hill didn't report the situation on the left to Lee, even though he learned that Porter was drawn up, facing north and west, ready to give battle as early as 1 p.m., well before Lee had A.P. Hill launch his attacks. And Stonewall Jackson was late again because he had another bad march, getting delayed by a 90-minute detour, which brought his divisions to the front much later than Lee had desired. In order to get Jackson's soldiers directly into the fight, Lee frequently took direct command of Stonewall's troops without consulting that officer. There's no getting around the fact that at the Battle of Gaines Mill, Stonewall Jackson again performed poorly. One of the most perceptive Confederate chroniclers, E. Porter Alexander, argued that, quote, Had Jackson attacked when he first arrived, or during A.P. Hill's attack, we would have had an easy victory, end quote. Stonewall was probably not only thrown off stride by his misguided march, but also seemed unsure of how to exercise professional judgment and personal initiative on the battlefield when he was under Robert E. Lee's command. He arrived at the front at 3 p.m., but seemed unable to grasp what was happening and showed a dogged determination to stick to Lee's original orders, even when it became obvious that they no longer applied because there was no Union flank to attack. As it was, in preparation for the final Confederate assault, each of Jackson's divisions came on the field and went into battle with very little and often not any direction from Jackson himself. It took Lee a long time to mass his troops, even after he realized how the situation had changed, with the Union line behind Boson Swamp instead of Powhite Creek. A.P. Hill fought alone from 2.30 to around 4 p.m., because Lee sent him into the attack, assuming that Jackson and D.H. Hill would be in place and follow the lead, but Lee didn't seek out Jackson until after A.P. Hill was fully committed. Given the confusion surrounding Stonewall the day before, on Friday Lee should have probably sent his trusted aide, Walter Taylor, to make sure Stonewall and D.H. Hill were in position and ready to step off before he sent in A.P. Hill. Yet despite his missteps, Lee, through his personal control of the battle, 
managed to finally get a massed and loosely coordinated assault to occur in the late evening, just in time to drive the enemy from the field. At Gaines's mill, Lee managed to keep a tighter leash on his division commanders, which was already an improvement from the debacle at Mechanicsville 24 hours earlier. If Robert E. Lee, in the end, gets a passing grade for his actions on June 27th, his Union counterpart does not. During the day's fighting north of the Chickahominy, McClellan left everything to Fitz John Porter, who was a capable officer and did the best he could with what he had, fulfilling Little Mac's desire that he hold out north of the river for one more day, even though it cost him nearly 7,000 casualties to do so. But of course McClellan never launched an attack south of the Chickahominy as Porter expected. Unlike Lee, who abandoned his headquarters at Selwyn after only half an hour in order to direct events from the field, McClellan never left his headquarters south of the river. Expecting a Confederate assault south of the Chickahominy to materialize at any moment, McClellan was slow and stingy with reinforcements for Porter, even though he suspected Porter was going to be attacked by overwhelming force. When word came that night that Porter was defeated and would have to cross the bridges under cover of darkness, McClellan took it hard and became despondent. He also became bitter, convinced that he was in this position because the government hadn't heeded his repeated calls for more troops. Next week we'll look at Little Mac's actions in the aftermath of Gaines's Mill, including his stupendously insubordinate telegraph to, to Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, and then we'll start in on the action at the next of the Seven Days Battles, Savage's Station, which took place on June 29th. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is The Richmond Campaign of 1862, The Peninsula and the Seven Days, edited by Gary W. Gallagher. This book is part of a series edited by Gary Gallagher, and each book covers a major campaign in the war's eastern theater, and each book is comprised of eight or so essays by leading Civil War historians. Each essay focuses in on one aspect of the campaign and explores it in detail. For example, some of the essays in this book are Sleepless in the Saddle, Stonewall Jackson and the Seven Days, and The Men Who Carried This Position Were Soldiers Indeed, The Decisive Charge of Whiting's Division at Gaines's Mill, uh, and then The Seven Days of George Britton McClellan. Uh, and there are a handful of other essays, too, um, so it's good stuff for those of you wanting to explore this campaign in more detail. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. You can always listen to any episode of the podcast directly from the website, or it's uh, available on Google Play and on iTunes. And speaking of iTunes, uh, thanks to all of you who still continue to give us those great five-star reviews. We've been doing this for well over three years now, but it still brings a smile to our faces when we read the great things that you guys say about the show. So thanks. And we also wanted to say thank you for the encouraging messages we receive on Facebook or on Twitter or on the website or by plain old email. We read each one and appreciate the kind words you share about the podcast. 
Well, we do read each one, uh, but I guess around the time of my surgeries this summer, we started to slip a bit in responding to each one um, in a timely manner, shall we say. Uh, so if you've messaged us or emailed us or otherwise communicated with us this summer and haven't heard back from us, we do apologize. But please do keep them coming. Uh, hearing from you really does make our day. Okay. And then last but not least, just a reminder that the music you hear at the beginning and end of every episode of the podcast is from the song Midnight on the Water by Spiritwood Music, and we're grateful for their permission to use it. And thanks for joining us for this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you'll join us again next week as we continue working our way through the Seven Days Battles. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Once the Union retreat began, it didn't manifest itself the same way all over the field. Some units fell back grudgingly and in good order. Well... Uh, that's the dog drinking. So. <laughs> we'll just pause right here.